I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling the modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and I am so sorry for the delay with this episode. I thought my family and I were going to make it through this winter unscathed by illness, and then we got hit by a pretty horrendous virus. So I will spare you the details, but we are on the mend. I'm glad to be back. Uh, Such, unfortunately, is the reality of living in a city of nearly 20 million people where no one takes the time to recover before getting back out there to work, to school, spreading those pathogens around. So I hope you're all well. And if you've been sick, that you're taking the time you need to recover. Okay, so I am really excited about today's show with Rachel Natland and Chris Morosky, who are a couple and also the co-founders of the Wisdom Keeper School based in the Pacific Northwest and which was started here in Los Angeles. And so if Wisdom Keeper sounds familiar to you, it might be because the very first episode we did here on the Uncivilized podcast was with Sean Critchfield, who now heads up the Children's Outdoor Skills program of that school here in LA that I attend with my two little girls. And so Chris and Rachel are now based in Portland. They offer a whole host of ancient skills-based workshops and classes through Wisdom Keepers. And they're also the founders of the upcoming Elements Gathering, which is a week-long village experience camping among the ancient sequoias here in California. Uh, This is an annual gathering I will be attending this year. I'm so excited. Tickets just went on sale. And this is a family-friendly event. So if this sounds intriguing to you, you are definitely, definitely going to want to hear this episode. And I think you're also going to enjoy this episode if only to hear Rachel and Chris's amazing personal stories and the circumstances that brought these two people with such radically different backgrounds together. Um, Chris comes from this hardcore, rugged rewilder background. Since his 20s, he lived in the wilderness, in a teepee. He homesteaded. He's had six near-death experiences. And then Rachel was raised in the inner city without access to the wilderness or really nature at all. And with a lot of the trauma, unfortunately, that is a direct result of so many of the ills of our modern-day society. And she's really, really open about this on the show Uh She's amazing. And so her focus hasn't been on this romanticized ideal of going at it alone in the wilderness, but of restoring true community, Um, the community that's really always defined our species and and reimagining how to do that in the modern day world. So together, Rachel and Chris are this fascinating example of what we're trying to do here on the show, which is this intersection of the past, of the future, and of tapping into all this ancient knowledge in a way that's really relevant to our lives in the modern world. So thank you all so much for your listenership, for your support. I really can't wait to hear what you think of this one. You can leave comments for me on my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. And I will see you next Monday, I promise, (laughs) with a new episode. I'm here with Chris Morosky, a wildlife biologist with 30 years experience teaching Stone Age skills and nature connection, who is considered one of the top Stone Age skills experts in North America, and his partner, Rachel Natland, a homeschooling mother of two boys, ages 5 and 22, as well as a lifelong student of metaphysics and a devoted practitioner on the path of unconditional love. 
Together, they are the founders of the Wisdom Keeper School in the Pacific Northwest and also Los Angeles, which teaches ancient skills and deep nature connection as doorways to understand more fully who we are and why we're here. Rachel and Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. So guys, what would you both be doing on a typical day if you didn't have this interview right now? Can you walk me through a, a day in the life of Rachel and Chris in Portland? I would say typical is atypical. Yeah, there is no typical day. And that's just the way things are for us right now. Um, I tend to think about life sometimes like waves on the ocean. You know, you have these moments where the wave is forming, rising, moments when it's cresting, when it's falling, and then you're in the trough before the next wave <laughs> comes up. So it depends on where we're at. So yeah. where are you at right now? Are you are you rising? Are you in the trough? Oh, we're rising. <laughs> we're so rising. much work. <laughs> so much work right now. Yeah. So, um, Rachel, tell me, what are you working on? Uh, well, I mean, there's always homeschooling going on, which is uh, fun and, and time consuming. Um, and uh, in addition to that, Elements Gathering is getting ready to release. So that's always uh, tickets go on sale in just a couple of weeks. And there's always a lot of work in preparation for that. Um, and then in addition to that, we are releasing and scheduling all of our uh, skills classes uh, through the end of the summer, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wonderful. So just give us a quick preview of what Elements Gathering is about, because I, we definitely want to get into it later on the show. But I'd love to just for people listening, they're like, what's Elements Gathering? Can you give us the rundown? Sure. So Elements Gathering is a village experience. It is a community of uh, relative strangers that come together for a week in the forests amongst the, the amazing, beautiful, and ancient sequoia trees, um, about four hours north of Los Angeles. And we're in this incredible, beautiful spot where our focus is how do we come together uh, more beautifully to be more interconnected? How do we awaken our instincts? And how do we um, move forward um, out of the old paradigm and into the new? So lots of different workshops, lots of kids programs, music every night around the campfire. Um, we serve two meals a day. Uh, it's a really beautiful, beautiful experience. I'm, I'm really, really hoping to go this year. So I'm eagerly awaiting when tickets go on sale. So hopefully at the end of the show, we'll reveal that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, that sounds wonderful. I want to ask you both, um, just because you have so much going on in your life right now. Uh, if I asked you both like 10 years ago or even 20 years ago, what your life would be like, would you have envisioned this? What did you imagine? Uh, not even close. I know you probably hate questions like that, but you know. That's a great question. I think it's a great yeah. question. Oh, okay, good. I th that's how I, I think. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that way all the time, especially because to be honest with you, Jennifer, 20 years ago, I didn't expect to live really another day. Um, you know, my background is that I come from, you know, very hard places. Let's put it that way. And, um, I struggled with addiction. I struggled with, um, you know, just just a general apathy for life. Just really didn't care about much. And so, um, so yeah, um, I really, I really didn't, you know, up until the age of I'd say 
24, when things really started to change for me, when I started getting to work, uh, you know, doing a lot of self-work, um, I really didn't expect to live very long. So you can, you, you can believe that this life I'm living today is like, I feel like I'm on borrowed time and I'm grateful for every breath I take. <laughs> um, and that I get to live this incredible life is really like, it's, it just blows my coconut. I'll be honest with you. So, um, yeah, that's my deal. Wow. So Rachel, can, are you okay with talking more about that? Can you tell us, um, you know, so what changed for you at 24 and, and what was your childhood like? What, what brought you to that place? Well, Jennifer, I could I could probably write a book and 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 make a, a best selling movie out of my childhood, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just there was a lot of violence, a lot of addiction, a lot of uh, just a lot of exposure to things probably little kids shouldn't be exposed to. Um, in the neighborhoods you grew up in. Yeah, where did you grow up, Rachel? I grew up in, I mean, I moved 42 times in my life. So I grew up in a lot of places wow. and yeah, we had to move every year, sometimes a couple of times a year because we were poor and they kept raising my mom's rent and <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I went to my dad and sometimes I went to my mom and, you know, neither of my parents remarried particularly nice people. And <laughs> um, well, actually my my dad had one set mom that was that was nice but other than that um yeah so I just came from really hard places and I suffered a lot of abuse and um by the time I was 18 years old I did manage to graduate high school but I um found myself living in a crack house you know and I was five months pregnant and I weighed 98 pounds wow so mm -hmm. but then I was pregnant and that's what started to change everything. I had a baby. I don't want to take up the whole interview with this, but it, you know, it, it, it was a long call. It was a lot of work. Um, there was a lot of black backsliding in the first few years. I had a newborn baby. I had no idea what to do with it. I had no support. I had no internet. There's no internet back then, you know? <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was a hard haul. But at the age of 23, um, I finally got some good mentorship in my life, other moms, um, healers, people who had been through things that I had been through that were willing to sit and do, do the work with me, you know, and, and I worked my butt off because I knew that my kid needed me. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. Um, sorry, I'm just blown away. I, I did not know that about your background. So, wow, that's unbelievable. You no, know, I didn't come from a background as, you know, I want to say, I guess, you know, traumatic as yours, but I, I did come from a certain amount of, uh, I had a difficult childhood. And so I, I often wonder if the reason why I came to this place of being intensely interested in being more connected with nature and to ancestral skills, I meet a lot of people in this world who also come from similar stories. And mm -hmm. I wonder, like, have you, Chris, I remember you talking about in one of your earlier interviews, you said, um, from an early age, you, you were asked the question when you first became interested in this world of ancestral skills. And you described the fact of, you know, walking around your own neighborhood growing up outside of Detroit. And you said, you know, I had the sense that someone really screwed up, that this was not the way humans were supposed to be living. And you mm. talked about when, but I, I was wondering, have you, have you thought about why? Is there something about your 
background or who you are innately as a person that brought you to this world? And Rachel, I know I'm loading on the question, but Rachel, do you see that th this is the connection, that this background is something that leads people to this world? So let me, let me answer first, and then we'll switch to Rachel here. I believe that children choose their parents. Um, I believe that when we manifest into this reality, that we are kind of like raindrops that have to coalesce around some particle, and that we bring something with us, which might not exactly be a past life, but it does seem like we bring something with us that we're here to work on. So we've got our storyline, we've got our, um, our work cut out for us, and then we add to that as we go along with you know, the various uh, traumas and um, misunderstandings that are presented to us by our family, by our society, by our, our environment. And so me coming into this reality, um, I had a very different kind of a relationship, I think, with uh, seeing the world around me. I was really living in, in my mind, in my own internal sense of who I am, my own identity, living 300 years ago. And so as I looked around me, what I saw was I saw this tremendous disconnection that people who live right beside each other don't know each other, that they don't have meals together. Um, and in fact, where I lived, and I, I wasn't in inner city Detroit, I was uh, in the suburbs, uh, which was a middle class neighborhood, nice houses, everybody has a yard, almost everybody has a fence around their yard. Um, <laughs> and I literally had neighbors that I did not know their names. And that kind of that kind of um, uh, dissociation to me is even in, even now at my age, um, and I'm way over three thousand years old now. <laughs> as, as I look around, I'm still shocked by it. I still don't understand it, and I'm still um, deeply disappointed with humanity that we've missed out, we've we've glossed over, and we've misinterpreted uh, who we are and our purpose for being here so grossly. And I'm also, I'm also an eternal optimist too, so there's that. Well, yeah, I'm really interested in that balance because lately I've been having a hard time with the eternal optimist part of it. It's a challenging time, Jennifer. <laughs> so Chris, how old were you when you felt like this? I mean, do you, do you have memories of like talking to your friends or family about this? Did, did your family share this uh, innate <laughs> awareness with you? No, my, my parents didn't share that kind of an awareness or reality. Um, my dad was definitely a throwback, uh, but he was a throwback to more of the mountain man era. That was uh, a big part of his identity. And, uh, you know, you, most people wouldn't really know that because he was, he was a school teacher and, uh, and in the modern world in so many ways. But uh, my dad was also one of the most competent outdoorsmen I've ever met. And so I learned a lot about the outdoors from him. But in terms of the ancient skills and ancient relationships and my intense drive around community, which has been a long journey of me understanding that drive, uh, my dad didn't share that with me. 
So when did you first come to the world then of that search for community, the really diving into the ancestral way of living? What, at what point did that happen? Um, so those are two different timelines. <laughs> okay. The, all of my, my earliest memories, so many of them are me trying to get into nature uh, in every possible way that I could. Uh, I had, I had uh, hollowed out a little path into our raspberry patch in our backyard so that I could get into the very center of it and I would sit there. And that would be a connection time for me with nature. And nobody encouraged me to do that. Um, my parents have reflected back to me that I've always been a bit different. You know, <laughs> they, they couldn't understand what was driving me. And, uh, and I, I had um, two different drives, I think. One was just to have this deep nature connection, and the other one was isolation. Um, maybe coming to a place of silence where I could, uh, could really feel and be a part of that, um, vibration, which is nature. And then the other question about, uh, community, well, I had to go way off into the wilderness for a long time and really live apart from people before I realized that I actually do like people. Uh, and that I actually really love people and uh, that I, what I really don't like is the way that people often treat each other and that it's because we have been born into a society which is um, so very strange and so very different from what is normal for our species if we look at the long history of humanity. As you were talking about you know, that search for solitude and trying to find nature in every possible place. I, I'm just wondering, just so we can kind of get a parallel look, Rachel, do you have, I know you had such a different upbringing and do you have any, are there any memories from your childhood of nature? Or when you look back, is it just an absence? Oh, no. I mean, you know, I grew up in Miami mostly. I mean, in Brooklyn, there was a pretty big absence of nature, let's be honest. But, um, but, but a my tree grows in Brooklyn. It does. And there was a tree in front of my, in front of one of my, one of my places, a brownstone. <laughs> and, uh, and actually when we lived on Staten Island for those nine months, I had an actual yard. So that was cool. Um, but, uh, but mostly what was cool is that my mom, uh, she, despite how poor we were and how inaccessible resources were for us, she really wanted me to have experiences of nature. For whatever reason, she decided it was important. She was very outside the box uh, for the other moms <laughs> in that way. Um, and so she, when we lived in Brooklyn for two summers, I went to a sleepaway camp, Jewish sleepaway camp. <laughs> Are you Jewish, Rachel? I, I am Jewish, yeah. Okay, I am and too. So I did have also the requisite two years at a Jewish sleepaway camp. <laughs> So yeah, I went to the sleepaway camp for two years and uh, I would say that was my, but also, you know, I grew up in Miami, Jennifer, and there's nature everywhere in Miami. It's everywhere. Uh, it's tropical. There's water everywhere. There's just, it's kind of like Portland where it's the city, but there's nature everywhere inside the city. Uh, huge, beautiful parks. Uh, the beach is, you spend your whole childhood there. You spend your childhood barefoot, hanging out of ficus trees. 
uh, swinging on their vines like Tarzan. And that's just in the city park. And that's just how Miami is. Um, and, but what I, and I always love that. And, you know, just being barefoot and wild was definitely my thing. Um, but what I really recall about nature was there was a time when we moved from Brooklyn, we moved for four months to the Pocono mountains in Pennsylvania. And we lived in a double wide trailer. Um, I don't know how big the land was that we were on because the land around it hadn't been bought yet. And so we were like the first people in this new development. And so we were deep in the woods, basically all isolated. It was the first time I'd ever lived away from a city or anything like that. And it was so quiet. Um, and I would go for walks every day in the woods by myself because I'm an only child for that time until I hit 14 and then I'm not anymore. But, um, and nobody screaming at me, nobody trying to, you know, I mean, it's like, it was just so quiet. Um, and then I moved back to Miami and, and life took back over and, and, and all of that. But I never lost that memory of peace that I had in those woods when I was like 11. Yeah. So, so yeah. interesting that you both are talking about, you know, Chris, you mentioned too, that, that feeling of solitude, you know, in nature mm -hmm. and that something that I think about all the time because I grew up in, well, I, I, we moved around a lot too, but I grew up mostly in wooded Connecticut, but my kids have such a different experience and they never, you know, other than when we try to get out of the city, they, there's nowhere to go. You don't have that kind of solitude. So mm -hmm. Chris, I, can we get, let's get back to your story for a little bit. So what first sent you out to, was it British Columbia where you first went to go live out in no. the middle of what, the wild? When I, I mean, I was taking short trips even before I had left home, um, a three week solo canoe trip into the boundary waters of Northern Minnesota and, uh, and into Canada. And, uh, and I did a, you know, a two week solo trip, uh, into the forest in Wisconsin, but those were short little ventures. When I, when I first moved, uh, moved out and moved into the forest was in Montana and I lived there for, uh, oh, I don't know, about a year. How old uh, were you? Oh, that was after, after college. So I would have been 21, something like that. Okay. Then, so you went to school, you, you studied wildlife biology in college. I did, yes. Okay, and then you went out. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, the funny thing is I, I actually I went to uh, the University of Wisconsin and got my degree in wildlife biology and management, and then I got a job down in Ohio. And so while I was in Ohio, um, I was working at a youth camp and, and teaching outdoors things. And... As that, uh, this was based on the school year, and so when the summer came, I would be out of a job, and I thought, well, I need to find something to do, something that's going to be for work to bring in money. I had some savings, though, and I kept looking at the, the job possibilities, and nothing, I just couldn't make myself send in a resume, and then time kept going on, and the interesting jobs had already been taken, and uh, and then it just you know how those epiphany moments seem to come out of nowhere. 
And I, I have this, yeah, so I had this epiphany, which was I should just head out west and I should go and visit reservations. And, um, and that came out of nowhere. And within a week, I ran into this old man and he said, uh, and I, I struck up a conversation and told him what my plan was for the summer. And he said, oh, well, you should get a, a sheet of paper and a pencil because I've been living with the Crow and Sue for parts of the last 20 years, and I can tell you who to go and see. And so that was my, that was my, my first trip out west, uh, was visiting those reservations, spending time with the people, and also taking some, uh, some journeys way deep back into the wilderness. And then I came back to Ohio and spent um, another season working in that camp, and then I left for good, back to Montana, and uh, and then to Idaho, and then from there up into British Columbia. And so, what brought you to British Columbia? And was that where you lived for the longest amount of time? It was. I um, I had been teaching at a Stone Age skills gathering in uh, um, in. British Columbia, and I met a woman there that I then later married, and she was Canadian. So it seemed like the smart thing to do was to move where the wilderness is bigger and this woman is from. <laughs> right. We all kind of I idealize British Columbia, too, I think, in this world. It's like, that's it's it, my husband's a screenwriter and when they ever you know you have to shoot somewhere really like ancient and primeval that you know they the crew goes to british columbia right right <laughs> i mean right across the border there are the polar bears yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not really um, but yes the it's beautiful there's so much beauty there's so much wilderness um yeah so much that i really love about british columbia and and I lived there for, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so. And then I, so I, I navigate by, I navigate a lot intuitively. And so what I do is I notice when I have a physiological response to whatever's happening in my environment. Because I, I trust that that physiological response is coming from uh, let's just say our instinctual connection to the perfect system of nature. So we have evolved with nature. We have uh, intuition, which is related to um, how this bigger system all works mm -hmm. with all of the checks and balances that happen that way. And so when I get a, a, a physiological hit that says, pay attention here because I'm feeling something that is other than love, so it's uh, fear or excitement or it's um, anger or frustration, then I want to pay attention to that. And, uh, and I had, I had uh, in a conversation someone talking about Southern California, and I felt it, and it was really strong, really powerful. <laughs> And so I just noticed that. When you say I, powerful, what, what do you mean? In a negative way? In an exciting way? <laughs> powerful. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know how I feel about LA, so I'm um, really interested. For, for virtually all of my life, if you had asked me, hey, would you like to go and live with 18 million people? Uh, that's, what a crazy idea. Absolutely <laughs> not. Not a chance. 
and uh, but this time it was a a feeling which uh, which doesn't really fit an easy emotion, but it was definitely an understanding that there is something there that is very powerful um, and important for my learning journey, and that I really need to pay attention to that. And just to contrast, so you you're contemplating living. I mean, moving to a place with 18 million people, you had been living, had you been living completely off grid up until that point? What were, what were your living conditions like for most of the time that you were up in British Columbia? Um, British Columbia, most of the time was not off grid. Um, I lived in a, or we lived in a yurt for a while there. We lived in a variety of different places that we rented. And then finally, I purchased um, an acre of property, a, a homestead that was right at the edge of the wilderness, about 30 miles uh, north of the, the Washington border, um, pretty much straight north of Spokane. And, um, and so I had a, um, I, I was in a, uh, a trailer that was on that property. Um, and and I had really poor internet, <laughs> but I was still still connected to the world. But you know, I would see sometimes I'd look out my back door and there's a bear. Uh, so I was in that kind of reality. Yeah. Okay. All right. Definitely a big jump moving from there down to <laughs> Los Angeles. Yeah, I can imagine you have to be pretty tapped into whatever that innate calling is. I can't even imagine making a decision like that. So, okay. How long was it from the time you felt that response to the time you actually moved to LA? It was six, six to eight months, something like that. Uh, it took me when I first had that really strong sense, I didn't immediately act upon it. I just noticed it. And then a while later it came up again and then a while later, it came up again, and I'm uh, I'm following that thread to get more clarity because Southern California is a really big place, um, and so so very quickly that kind of led me to directly moving to Los Angeles, and um, and so it took me a little while then to settle all of my settle all of my affairs, rent out my house, and I gave away or sold virtually everything I owned. I packed up mostly clothing and kitchen supplies into five boxes and shipped those down. And, uh, and I gave away my truck and hopped onto a plane and showed up in sunny LA. And what was your first week like in LA? Well, the... The first day and night was uh, um, was very unusual for me because I, you know, I had lived in a place where I might hear a siren once a month, and then I moved right onto Pacific Coast uh, Highway into a condominium complex with um, with four hundred and thirty units, and the very first day and night, I think I heard like seventeen sirens. And every time a siren would go by at night, it would wake me up. And so there was a, a huge um, adjustment period, not a long adjustment period, but a big adjustment <laughs> period uh, that I needed to approach very consciously. That's so sad. 
sorry. I'm just laughing because I swear, Jennifer, I can sleep through helicopters and cops on the megaphone. And <laughs> Yeah, Rachel, I was just going to say, I actually had the reverse experience recently. I went camping. We're trying to make an effort in our family to go camping more because I love it. And we went camping in Joshua Tree and I woke up in the middle of the night because of the silence. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I woke up and, you know, like and had like a full panic attack. It was so embarrassing because... <laughs> I was not used to the stillness and the darkness. So yeah, I'm with you, Rachel. But yes, I know, you know, Chris, my kids have that physiological response because we try to spend large amounts of time outside of LA. So we were actually just up in Bend, Oregon for a couple of weeks over the holidays. And when we get back, they're terrified. I can see them like the side when the sirens go off here. It's like they have this huge reaction. And, and I actually, I, well, I'll just have you talk about how you sort of shifted your mind to deal with that reality. Well, we all have beliefs and we all have strategies which are not useful, um, which perhaps were useful at a time, but which no longer are or they're being applied to things now which, um, which they were never really intended for. And so... When I was living in British Columbia and a siren went by, it was a big event and I, it was interesting. It was something that I wanted to pay attention to. But down in Los Angeles, the sirens are so frequent that if I use that same strategy, the same belief system, it wouldn't be useful. And so I needed to change what I, what I understood the sound of a siren to mean, both intellectually as well as physiologically. And so what I was doing was when that siren would go off, um, I, would, I would feel in my body the tension. And so the first step was simply to step by step, muscle by muscle, relax my entire body. And then to think about what does the siren actually mean in this context. And in that context, it was simply, um, or perhaps the most useful way for me to think about it was, hey, there is somebody whose job it is to look after um, the safety of the community or somebody who needs to be taken to a hospital. And I can actually relax into that consciousness um, and allow myself to uh, take that in as just background noise. And did that work? Absolutely. It did. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're, you know, we have a lot of neuroplasticity. We have the ability to really shift major things. Um, and we have to because all of us have been given poor strategies uh, that have been modeled to us by our parents and our society. We've been given beliefs that are inaccurate. And we've been, we've all been born into a society that is profoundly ill. So if we're going to really get the most out of our lives, we have to do those changes. Rachel, where were you during this whole time? Can we kind of trace your path? Were you in LA? How did you yeah. two meet? Uh, yeah, I was in LA. I was living in Orange County, though, down in Huntington Beach when I met Chris. But I had moved to LA from Miami. I brought my 11-year-old son with me. Um, and I, I left Miami because I was seeking a different kind of consciousness. Let's just put it that way. And 
um, I just, I just felt like I'd always been like called to the West, um, specifically California. Uh, just God, as long as I can remember, I've, I've just been called and I've just always known I was going to go West. Um, but of course, you know, figuring out how to make that happen is a lot harder as a single mom. <laughs> um, I can imagine. Yeah. So I did finally, uh, when my son was 11 years old, I got us the heck out of there and we moved to Seal Beach, California. And uh, you want to talk about culture shock? Holy cow. Um, <laughs> it was a huge culture what shock. Was, what was the biggest shock? Um, you know, uh, it's kind of a class thing, you know, um, rich people are interesting. I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's definitely, I experienced a lot of classism when I was in Orange County. You know, I bought, I brought a lot of uh, culture and behaviors over from Miami that were not, uh, loved or appreciated. <laughs> yeah, Orange County is a much different place than LA, and I don't want to offend any Orange County listeners. But uh, and I'm trying to be very careful. There are wonderful people down there. Yeah, you don't have to be careful. It's okay. I think we're <laughs> my <laughs> listeners are probably. Well, I don't. I don't want to make any presumptions, but it, it is a much it, different place. Yeah, it, it's, a, yes. it's a much different place, and uh, I'm. I come from very, let's just say, diverse. Um, <laughs> backgrounds and places and, uh, you know, let's just say Orange County and I were not a good vibrational match. Let's just put it that way. Okay. And, <laughs> and uh, I met Chris while I was living down there. Um, I already had my son, Liam. He was two years old. I was working at a law firm. Um, I had, I ended up being, becoming, getting a career in the legal industry, which, which afforded me the ability to get upwardly mobile and, you know, actually make that move and, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. And to be able to, you know, at least somewhat support myself. <laughs> um, and, and I was really not loving my life <laughs> down there. Um, just not doing what I wanted to really be doing. And I felt that, I don't know, Jennifer, you know, I, when my son was born, I, gave up any aspirations I might have for myself. And I just committed myself to uh, improving my kid's life and trying to get him into good places so that he could be successful and not experience the things that I experienced in my life. And so I just sacrificed anything I kind of really wanted for myself in order to do that. Um, so when I got pregnant with Liam, um, Evan was 17 and I had been preparing to launch myself out into this single life, like this sort of, you know, not being responsible for another human life. And, and I got pregnant. So plans changed, you know? Um, but it sparked in me this idea that I am not living the life I want to live. And do I really need to live this life in order to honor my child and support my child? You know, do I need to be this, this cog in this corporate wheel doing everything that doesn't sit right in my soul in the legal industry, you know, um, when all I sit there every day looking out the window thinking, I just want to be outside, man. Why can't I be outside? You know? So how did you, the two of you meet? Okay, Cupid. Really? <laughs> 
I was listening for the pause. (laughs) How the heck else would two people like us ever find each other? I don't know, but that that's what happened. Yeah. And neither of us have, I don't know. I kind of envisioned like stumbling upon each other in a hiking path somewhere, you know? Yeah. No. Mm -mm. Okay. Cupid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it was instant. And it was instant. And then how did you get from LA to Portland? Like, how did that whole, I, I feel like we don't have enough time to talk about everything I want to talk about with you guys in this call. Maybe we'll just have to do part two. Um, sure. But so, I mean, you know, Chris, you were talking about how you were shifting your your responses to this onslaught that we all have in a hyper-urbanized environment. But at what I struggle with all the time is like, at what point do you say enough? You know, like at what point do you stop trying to make the best of the situation that you're in and start actually looking for um, the existence that you maybe is a better fit? So did you did you really hit that point? I mean, what how did you guys start planning this future that you have now? When I even before I had come down to Los Angeles, intuitively, I had a sense that I would be there for five years. Really? uh, Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, life is a river and, uh, it's got a flow, it's got a current and it's got a direction. And if we don't make big changes around that, then we just kind of end up in a predictable place. So, uh, so that's what I was intuitively feeling. And by the time it was getting close to five years, I was really feeling it that, uh, I love Los Angeles. I love so many of the people down there. Not all 18 million, but... Um, <laughs> but all 600 of our Elements family. <laughs> we love you. We love you, fam. <laughs> it's, it's taken me a long time to find, you know, that tribe in LA, but they're there. I mean, there are great people they in LA. Are, are they there? Yeah. yeah. And so, so I was starting to feel it, though. There were things that, that beforehand in the previous years had been very easy for me to accept. And then by the time I was getting closer to five years, I became more and more critical and was looking at all of the ways in which I was seeing things being done in this huge city that just really weren't serving the greater good. And, um, and I was really feeling like it is time to move on. And, uh, and I really wasn't sure exactly where that was. So I'll hand it over to Rachel now. Oh, (laughs) well, I think that both of us, um, you know, Jennifer, for me, it's kind of a different thing. You know, it's, um, because of my background, what, what I, what Mm -hmm. I, my main, main focus is community, 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 and like, you know, uh, like real, community where we live together, we work together, we play together, you know, we do all of those things together. Um, and we do that on a very long-term basis. Um, and the reason I'm so, I'm so committed to that vision is because what I recognize is that a lot of the things that happened to me as a child would not have happened to me if I was in a community that could have caught me. Wow. Right. Yeah. Those would have never happened to me, but I lived in a duplex where I was being basically tortured by my stepmother for a year. And there's no way the people next door to us did not hear me screaming and nobody called the police. 
And to me, that's lack of community, that's disconnection, isolation. And I look and I see all the pain that goes on. I see all the trauma. I see the oppression of marginalized communities. And what I know is that when you're in real community, that kind of thing just doesn't go on. It just doesn't happen because we're not in competition with each other. We're in cooperation instead. And we understand that my survival depends on your survival and your survival depends upon mine, you know? Um, and when you're in a consciousness like that, these kinds of significant traumas just simply don't take place. If somebody is acting that far out of alignment, uh, you know, the, the, the tribe shows up to handle it, you know? And, uh, and to me, that's the driving force. It's like, it, it's a big thing for me that in community, there's just so much love and safety. And it's funny because it's safety to the point that provides you with, in a way, so much more autonomy than we have with this whole rugged individualism thing that we have going on in this country that everybody's obsessed with. Well, the survivalists and the preppers. Yeah, and, yeah but, but Amer the American identity is rugged individualist, you know, freedom and independence and, and this and that. And it's a beautiful thing, but I actually find that there's so much more freedom that you get when you have the love and support of a real community. And that's my driving force. And so we left LA because we cannot afford to buy 300 acres of land <laughs> around LA. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you know a billionaire investor, Jennifer, you know, um, you know, so we, we looked at climate, we looked at, uh, availability of land. We looked at, uh, land prices. We looked at consciousness, uh, safety issues for marginalized folks that might want to live in our community. We can't, we can't, uh, situate ourselves in the middle of a bunch of white supremacists. That's not going to work out. Um, so there's a lot of things to consider, and a lot of that is why we ended up here, just kind of exploring the opportunities that are available around here for uh, manifesting that vision that we're so committed to. That's so wonderful. So uh, can you tell me more about how you're living now then? Like, where where are you living? Are you are you on <laughs> 300 acres? Oh, God, no. Oh, <laughs> where do you, do you live in Portland? Where do you guys live? Well... Um, I'll, I'll just add to what Rachel was saying that uh, when she had taken a, a trip up here into yeah. Oregon mm -hmm. and she had, um, as soon as she crossed the border, she mentioned that she just felt this huge shift internally. And when she came back after having a really um, amazing transformative time up, uh, up here and said, wow, I really love this place. I feel like we should move to uh move to Oregon, move up to Portland. Um, again, intuitively, that physiological hit, I, I felt that. And I was like, okay, so this is the next step, right. which is not a destination. Life right. is a journey. Yeah. So yeah. we're here now, and, uh, and where we are in this moment is not where we're staying. We're just here now. Yeah. And, and we do. We live in Portland in a house that we rent. Uh, we you know, the lease is up in April and we're probably going to move further out into the country. I just, you know, I'm a city girl and I wanted to get to know the terrain first. So I was like, I need to move to the city first and then we can, <laughs> you know, get to know what's going on, you know, outside of the city. And I, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're, we're in that same exploration phase right now. 
uh, with Oregon, actually. I felt that same feeling you described, Rachel, when you when I first oh. crossed in for the first time. And, I, you know, we're here for the in L.A. for a while because of my husband's work. But, um, yeah, we're sort of in that exploring the cities of Oregon and probably ultimately more of the countryside, uh, too. So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it sounds it sounds really really wonderful. So, and then how did uh, I want to give you guys a chance to talk about Wisdom Keepers and how that arose and and what you're doing because I think it's so I think it's so telling first of all that there is this huge surge in um this interest in ancient skills and wilderness skills and uh yeah, I just I want to give you the opportunity to talk more about it and why you think it's so important now. Right, right. Well, when I look at the long history of humanity, we came down out of the trees about 7 million years ago, and we were a lot furrier back then. Uh, not quite human, but yet so many of the same things that around um, community and um, interconnectedness and the value of each individual within that community, um, we've kind of been mostly the same way for almost the entire time that we've been on two legs. And the, uh, the agricultural revolution starting 10, 12,000 years ago, um, that, was, that was the beginning of the great modern experiment. And all the time before that, the 99.999% of the time, uh, we've pretty much always lived as, as egalitarian, uh, communities, 25 to 50 uh, or so individuals, and uh, immediate return, which means that the calories that you eat each day are the calories that you gathered that day, which means you have a tremendous amount of faith in the stability of your environment and your connection to your environment. And... Um, and so then we, then we come into this now period, and the now period is, uh, is right at the point when, uh, when we look at technology and we're seeing not only technology, but we're also seeing the effects of technology, like the, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the air and uh, human population. Um, we're seeing this exponential growth curve, which looks like kind of a flat line for a long period of time. And then suddenly it spikes and goes almost straight up. And we're in that part of the curve where it's going almost straight up now. And um, so we're looking at the exponential growth of technology. And exponential growth is something that humans really have a very hard time getting a good grasp of. Um, things are changing so quickly around us that we being a species that has has evolved so slowly over time big changes were uh you know fire was a million plus years ago uh stone tools were 3.7 million years ago um these things happened over grand periods of time and so our instincts are virtually the same as they've always been we just have this thin veneer of sophistication that we wear around us, but inside we're the same. But the world around us is not, and it's changing so, so quickly. 
Um, a good way to understand exponential growth is to go back to the example of the, uh, the inventor of the game of chess, uh, who presented it to the, the ruler of India, um, and, uh, and, and that ruler was so impressed, said, what would you like as a, as a gift in return for this cool thing? And the person said, well, just one grain of rice on the first board of, of the chessboard, the first square, um, two on the next one, four on the next one, eight on the next one, and just keep doubling. And that seems like it's so little. There's 64 squares on a chessboard. How much could that possibly be? Well, by the time you get to the 64th square, if you took all of that rice and laid it out end to end, it would reach Alpha Centauri, the, the nearest star, uh, 25 trillion uh, miles away from Earth and back. So that's exponential growth. That's what's happening right now. That's amazing. I've never heard that example before. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we have this such incredibly rapid change that's happening, and people are feeling it. And there is, uh, there is an increasing recognition that whatever we are teaching our children is not going to prepare them for the world that they will experience. This is something I struggle with all the time, because knowing what you know, Chris and Rachel, and, and understanding the context of what's happening to us right now, how do you guys go about in your daily life? Don't you sometimes feel like you took the red pill? Well, first of all, I don't feel like I'm the only person who feels this way. I know a lot of people that feel this way. So you do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people that feel this way. There's a lot of common-minded folks out there, and maybe not everybody feels exactly the same way I do. Like, I don't consider myself a rewilder, uh, because the end goal of rewilding is to transition back into hunter-gatherer uh, status, and I, I have no interest in that. Like like I told you, I, I look towards mm -hmm. the future, and I want to be a spacefaring people. I would love it if we, like, book me on that virgin Atlantic to the moon. I'm, I'm there. Um, <laughs> Chris, do you feel that way? I'm excited about everything. Really? Yeah. Uh huh. I really am. I, this is, um, right now, Earth is the best game going. It's super exciting. And, <laughs> um, and out of all of the planets that I could have chosen to come down on, this is a really exciting one, you know. There's, <laughs> Humanity is at a, a transition point, Pivotal which, point, which either we're going to figure it out and we're going to move into um, probably a, 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 a golden era, or we're going to destroy ourselves. Uh, but either way, wow, what an exciting time to be alive. There's more going on now than there ever has been in the history of humanity. That is true. That's a great way to look at it. So, okay. So <laughs> like, like for me, like, uh, there's, there's a lot of progressive consciousness that's going on as well. Uh, binaries are being smashed all over the place. Uh, whether that be, you know, where, where everything has to be, you know, it's like black or white, gay or straight, male, female, you know, all of those binaries are being smashed and we're becoming, uh, you know, we're kind of a rigid species. We don't actually adapt very quickly or very well. And if we're going to be changing ourselves this quickly, we better start learning how to be more fluid and adaptable instead of um, so set in our consciousness on this structured binary. And, you know, a lot of the work that's going on in 
um, so like social, uh, social work is like, um, is, is headed towards that more fluidity within our consciousness and within the manifestation of who we are, which is going to lead to like just a much more adaptable consciousness period. And, uh, I think that's a good thing. I'm okay with that. Um, but I think that while we need people pushing forward, we need people who are maintaining those old ways, who are always here to remind us of who we really are. You know, um, it can be easy to lose yourself when you're flying off into outer space. I'm sure that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know. So right. And, and like in The Martian, you may need to know all those essential, you know, growing skills. And did you guys see that movie? Yeah. yeah, or Chris, read the book, of course. Chris first. Crazy. He was like, what is this guy doing? This guy is not a biologist. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I look at um, I look at, at the human organism. I think a, a good way to um, to look at that is to compare it to a computer. So a computer has hardware and software and the hardware is harder to shift. And the software is much easier. And so we come into this world with hardware and, um, and perhaps a little bit of software, but that's really where our adaptability comes in. And we take whatever we're born into as being normal and right and probably good. And so even people who have been in really abusive situations, a lot of times those people, um, they they remain in those situations because it's comfortable. Not that it's better, but it's comfortable. And so um, the Wisdom Keeper School, what we seek to do in that in all of the programs there is we are seeking to engage with our instincts, engage with all of this old knowledge of how to be in the world as a, as a unified, egalitarian kind of a people, um, to be in deep relationship with our sources of life, and to live in a way that is, um, is harmonious um, within the community as well as um, uh, with the environment. And so, and that is the long history of humanity. And, and this 10,000, 12,000 years, that's a blink compared to how long we've been living um, as an egalitarian people in kind of one stable way. And so these programs, we are replicating, we're reproducing some very old behaviors by, for instance, weaving a basket or chipping a stone tool or uh, following tracks, or um, or consciously foraging for different kinds of plants. And when we do these old behaviors, we wake up old consciousness. It's like a light goes on inside of us, and suddenly the world looks and feels a little different. Um, everybody who starts a fire by rubbing sticks together they pretty much all have that experience. It's like, oh my gosh, I just, that was so amazing. And they all have the same look on their face. Yes. <laughs> it's that look of awe. This, yeah. This yeah. Of, of like, oh my gosh, I suddenly understand something that I probably <sighs> can't put into so words, fun. but I feel it. And 
So by doing that, we get into that old, older, wiser, deeper self. And in the process, we're also cultivating patience and self-discipline and awareness and empathy and interconnectedness. So many things. Um, and, and like for me, it's like, I keep thinking about Jennifer because they do come from this sort of technolo technology background. And I keep thinking, what if we stopped looking at technology as a tool, as an inanimate tool, and started looking at our technology like a relationship, right? Um, uh, you know, if we think about it, a spoon is technology. Fire is technology. Uh, a basket is technology. In fact, they call it primitive technology in anthropology. And um, and we're able to get into relationship with these things. It's a lot easier. They're made of natural material, you know, what we call natural materials, right? And so it feels easier to feel that connection. But what if every time we sat down with our computer, we smudged and created a sacred space and, you know, got into connection? I mean, Everything has a vibrational quality. Everything has an energetic signature. In my belief, the universe runs in through and around all of creation, and that includes my computer. And so I can get into relationship. It can be a sacred relationship if I choose to approach it that way. I can also have a basket and have no relationship with it, right? Um, I think it's harder to be in relationship with things we didn't make ourselves. But I can tell you that uh, somebody who builds their own computer is in deep relationship with their computer. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and what if we approach the future from that perspective? What if instead of what was driving the development of technology, what if instead of it being money and profit and greed, what if it was, what is the best, most awesome thing we could create for humanity? You know, what is going to be uh, a manifestation of love through technology for humanity? What if that was what was driving development? I think we'd be looking at a very, very different world. Yeah. And I love that vision. But what troubles me is that what's really driving this hurtling force toward toward rapid technologization right now isn't coming from that place at all. Oh, no, it's not. So, exactly. And that's what troubles right. me. I mean, because as I look around, like, you know, we're talking about... Um, sentient robots very soon driverless cars everything automated i mean i the people Augmented. i know are not we're not driving that, that that's not being driven by people uh, anyone i know so when you look out into the future i mean do you guys actually feel that optimism deep in your soul because i really want to but it's it's you know i i'm a bit scared by what's driving this exponential growth that's that's happening you know right in front of our eyes yeah, yeah. I'm definitely on the fence. Uh, I believe this can go either way. And it's, <laughs> it's again, um, you know, I talk about it as a fascinating time to be alive, but I also see it as a privilege to be here at this time with the ability to influence the direction that humanity takes. Yep. And so, you know, that's why, that's why we're teaching. That's and why the children we we're bringing together. forward. Yep. The children we are bringing mm -hmm. forward it makes all the difference in the world. Right. And right. Rachel, I may actually have you, I would love to have you back talking about your homeschooling experience because that's so important too. And we didn't even really get into that yet. 
uh-huh. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, I, I like to think that we can we can help take control of it. And so are you, do you guys have dark days? Or are you all optimistic? <laughs> What's I've just your- had a dark year, Jennifer. Honestly, I've had a very dark year. Oh, I'm um, sorry to hear that. <laughs> I think a lot of us have. Yeah, um, and you know, uh, you know, there's there's just you know a lot of people in my life that are heavily affected by the things that are going on in our country right now. Um, so it's it's been a very heavy year for me. Um, that warrior spirit definitely got called forward this year. <laughs> Um, which, which I have because of my upbringing, you know, and, um, and that's good. And that, that was needed and what, what needed to happen. And now, you know, uh, in Chinese astrology last year was the year of the fire rooster. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty sure there was a fire rooster in the white house, but, um, there's, (laughs) But this year is Earth Dog. And that starts in February this month. And that sure feels a lot better. And, you know, when I think about Earth Dog, that sounds good to me. And uh, and I do feel the energy shifting more towards, okay, you know, we've, we've, we've spoken loudly, loudly this year. And, um, and now it's, it's time to really... Uh, dig in and take action for real change. Um, and that's going to have to come from the day-to-day work. And you can't, you can't allow yourself to walk around in that kind of consciousness for long because then you really aren't going to be able to influence anything in the right direction, you know? And uh, I think we all have to do our best part. And, you know, I have a lot of faith uh, I have a lot of, you know, I have been a student of metaphysics for a really long time, and I can give you a whole long story about why I feel optimistic, just because even if our race doesn't make it this time around, I know that, you know, we're, we're going to get to try again. So, <laughs> and so in that way, I always have, uh, I can always draw on that as some sort of sense of optimism, knowing that our small perspective on things is not the whole story. I love that, Rachel. I don't. I don't want to keep you guys much longer. But Chris, any final thoughts? Lots. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Thank you for for all of your questions and the opportunity to speak here. Um, I do understand that there's there's a lot of anxiety and confusion and frustration. And also, there are a lot of people who are really digging in their heels about um, certain ways of being, certain things that, um, uh, you know, my mom said to me at one point, she said, well, you know, I'm very traditional in my thinking. And I, <laughs> and I had to ask her, um, which tradition? What tradition <laughs> From what time? And when? And, uh, and so we're, you know, we're, we're all in the river and we're all bobbing along and, uh, and life doesn't let us hold on to the rocks or the shore for very long before a wave comes and tosses us back into it. Yep. This is what it is to be human, is to be on this journey. And right now the journey looks like this. So how do we learn to navigate this new river? And so I always am cultivating curiosity. 
Um, one of the reasons that I, I love Rachel and am so fascinated by her experiences <laughs> is because they're so different, you know, coming from Ditto. Uh, such a, such a, a city um, and impoverished kind of uh, background. And, um, and, and then comparing that to my background and reaching, reaching a consensus, <laughs> you know, a consensus on, on, uh, on the direction that we're traveling. And so I, I do, I do always have hope and I always do have curiosity and I always have excitement. And of course I have my, my dark days too. But um, but what a privilege to be here and experience all of this. So wonderful. And clearly there's there's such harmony between those two visions. So it's been so wonderful to speak with you both today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. So where can people get in touch with you? Are you guys on social media? Yeah, we're totally on social media. They can find either of us on Facebook. Um, they can find Elements Gathering has a website, elementsgathering.com. Wisdom Keepers has a website, wisdomkeepers.org. Is that right? No, .us. Oh, .us. Wisdomkeepers.us. Sorry about that. It's all about us. All about us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Wisdom Keepers and Elements Gathering both have organization pages on Facebook as well. So it's just so easy. Our phone numbers are there. Our emails are there. Yeah. And when will tickets go on sale for Elements Gathering? For those of my listeners, including myself, eagerly awaiting to attend this year. <laughs> uh, tickets for uh, alumni, which means people who have attended previously, they get first dibs, and those tickets will be on sale February 15th. Uh, tickets for early bird tickets for everybody else, it's March 1st. Okay, I will be standing by the computer on March 1st. Thank you both, and I really, <laughs> really hope to join you uh, up in the Sequoias this summer. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at JenniferGrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode. <laughs>